Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI familia, and welcome to episode nine of Que Pasa HSIs. As we enter um, November, many of us are getting tired after working hard to launch another year and welcome or welcome back our new and returning students. Today's episode of Que Pasa HSIs might be the energy and rejuvenation you need as we talk about leading and enacting servingness con cariño with Dr. Marla Franco from the University of Arizona. Enacting servingness in practice can be exactly what you want it to be and exactly what your campus and your students need it to be. And Dr. Franco is the epitome of doing this work with your heart and soul and with your ancestors in mind. What and who would our ancestors want us to be is a question that guides Dr. Franco's work. In this episode of Que Pasa HSIs, Marla Franco, who's the inaugural assistant vice provost for HSI initiatives at the University of Arizona, shares insight into the intentional ways she implements servingness con, cari con cariño and offers best practices. She talks extensively about her quote-unquote baby, the HSI Fellows Program, which has not only become a vehicle for advancing servingness on campus, but also serves as a retention tool for faculty and staff on campus. Dr. Franco also talks about her engagement with Tucson and greater Arizona community and how she has been a part of many initiatives, including the implementation of the AZHSI Consortium. Marla recognizes that this work cannot be done alone and shares the importance of having a collective group of committed leaders to do this with. Dr. Franco is a first-generation college graduate, having earned a bachelor's degree in sociology from the University of California, Berkeley, master's degree in counseling from California State University, Long Beach, and a doctoral degree in higher education from Azusa Pacific University. She is mom to two teenagers and is very active in the community, often posting pictures of her monthly bike rides through Tucson with her community on Instagram. She is my colleague and friend of, and one of my most trusted HSI co-conspirators. I have followed her work since she was an assessment professional documenting ways to measure and assess servingness even before the multidimensional conceptual framework for understanding servingness in HSIs was published. I hope you have paper and a pen as Dr. Franco shares extensive knowledge in this episode worth taking notes on. Okay, let's go ahead and get started with today's episode of Que Pasa HSIs. Today we have Dr. Franco. Thank you for taking the time to be here today on Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things Hispanic serving institutions. But before we talk about HSIs, I'd like to start out by just knowing a little bit about you, make sure our listeners know a little bit about you. We're higher ed scholars and practitioners. So tell us a little bit about your higher education journey and how you came to be where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to be here. I'm super excited for the launch of this podcast as well. I think it's uh, an exciting endeavor, so I can't, I can't wait to hear all the episodes. Um, so a little bit about me. Um, I'm actually originally uh, from Southern California, born and raised, and uh, started my higher education journey um, in the UC system as a student. Um, so first generation Latina college student navigating her way up to nor Northern California 
um, to pursue higher education. And so certainly I draw a lot upon my own experiences as a student as I think about you know, my work at each of the respective higher education institutions I've worked at. And um, so did undergrad at UC Berkeley and uh, then, you know, continued my first generation, you know, kind of scholar um, uh, identity over at Cal State Long Beach, where I earned a master's in counseling and higher education. Uh, and then a few years later after that, uh, earned a, a doctorate, a PhD at Azusa Pacific University. And so um, two out of three um, are HSIs. And so got to be a part of that aspect. Um, although I think, you know, back in those days, it was so, so less talked about, so unknown, not really a thing, right? Um, and it's interesting, you know, nowadays, uh, many of the UC schools are either HSIs or aspiring HSIs. So it makes me reflect a lot upon, you know, my own higher education journey there and um, the aspirations that I see today versus what my experience was back then. But um, interestingly, after I finished undergrad, you know, had a couple of jobs, you know, out of college and was not really kind of like feeling them. Um, and actually my mom, my mom worked at Cal State Los Angeles. She worked at the health center there. And it just so happened that there was um, kind of an elder over in the College of um, Engineering um, who, you know, kind of helped make a connection for me professionally. And I ended up, you know, interviewing and started off working actually within academic affairs. So I worked in the College of Engineering, Computer Science and Technology at Cal State Los Angeles. But I really like literally like so much of what I know today and so much of how I lead and learn was taught to me by the students at Cal State Los Angeles, um, predominantly pulling from you know, East Los Angeles communities, um, predominantly students of color, predominantly first gen and, and Pell's uh, recipients. So uh, they really taught me uh, much of what I learned today and uh, I certainly attribute a lot to them. Absolutely. And that's such an interesting um, place to think about it, uh, your your work in, around HSIs, because that, I mean, it probably been an HSI before the designation, right? Because of the location. Absolutely. Because of the, the absolutely. Location. Yeah, absolutely. So really yeah. thinking so about after, that. Yeah, after Cal State Los Angeles went to Cal Poly Pomona, um, served in several appointments, both in student affairs, did some development, auxiliaries, um, you know, really kind of rounded out my higher education experience, also in HSI, you know, but I think even at that time, it wasn't really predominantly a point of discussion um, or a focus or any sense of intentionality about it. Um, you know, but, but I think, you know, also did some really important work there. And, um, you know, I think all of those experiences collectively have, you know, just really informed, um, you know, the work that I do today, how I lead, how I learn, the vision that I have. And I think also, too, you know, there's a lot that's drawn upon that has nothing to do with higher ed that also influences how I do the work and how I show up, um, including, you know, family, um, you know, I think ancestral knowledge, um, you know, community based learning uh, and advocacy work is, is certainly informative and, and certainly shapes uh, my work. Absolutely. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, but something you, you keep saying is like, I worked in these HSI spaces 
wasn't really a conversation at the time, even if maybe it is now. Um, so tell us a little bit more about how HSI then came into your consciousness. When, when did you start having those conversations and what, at what point was it a conversation in any of these spaces um, or what I call the servingness journey? How did that happen? Yeah, so I would say that it, it mostly happened here at the University of Arizona. So I ended up making my way from California, Southern California to Tucson, Arizona in 2013. Um, and I came here um, with an opportunity to work at the University of Arizona, oversee assessment and research within one of our divisions. And it was perhaps maybe about two years into me having been here, where at the time our senior vice president, um, you know, began to kind of get curious again about where we were at relative to enrollment um, comparatively to meeting the criteria to becoming a federally recognized Hispanic serving institution. And so she asked me to kind of look into things. And I, I felt like, you know, initially it may have been a, a real casual um, request, nothing too heavy. Um, but I really, I think, connected with the request, right? And I uh, really kind of took it to heart and took a deep dive into it, really kind of monitored the enrollment, started to have conversations, started to reach out to colleagues across the nation um, to really come to understand and ask questions about the work. Um, some of it was, you know, kind of process and procedural oriented related to the U.S. Department of Education, but otherwise wanted to kind of really gauge their experience in terms of like, okay, when you became an HSI, what did that process look for, look like for you? How did you navigate, you know, campus conversations? How did you approach the work? And so um, that casual request from my senior vice president at the time, which came about in 2015, actually came three years prior to the official designation. But I think what it did is it allowed kind of a, a um, you know, an opportunity to have some, some lead time to begin to figure out, you know, what does this designation really mean? And it wasn't, it really was through conversations that I started having with my colleagues across the nation where I started to kind of like piece things together. Um, and so that's really where I started to have the conversation within my own workplace, within the, the setting of, of my employer, of the higher education institution I was working at. Okay, so really, let's go ahead and then jump into this work you've been doing at the you know University of Arizona. Um, you've been very successful, obviously, when it comes to enacting and embodying servingness. Somebody who I look to and 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 it, for ideas often of like what does servingness really look like in practice. So talk to us about your role as the inaugural assistant vice provost for Hispanic Servant Institution initiatives. How this role came about and and what does it entail? Yeah, so, you know, the designation came to be for us in 2018, and it was later in that same year where there were conversations that I was able to have with the leadership here at the University of Arizona. You know, I would say it was almost kind of like this, you know, perfect storm transition moment for the university, which I think, you know, ended up working um, to really give way and cultivate, uh, you know, uh, an opportunity for the doors to open to this work. Um, we had just recently um, uh, had a, a change in our president. So in our, our, our most senior leadership position, um, we also, you know, we're having transition um, in our provost um, position. 
And it was actually kind of our, our outgoing provost, our interim provost, and also an interim senior vice president of kind of like a student affairs division um, that really actually helped me put some of this in place before their departure. Um, and, you know, I think that very early on, there was a lot of strong support and endorsement um, from our president, as well as that outgoing provost and um, senior VP. And so they really helped kind of open the doors to what was possible. Um, they, I think, early on understood kind of the opportunity and the potential for impact, as well as our role and responsibility to really, to really, I think, approach the work meaningfully um, as an HSI. I think one of the things too is that I find this particular institution compared to others that I worked at prior um, to have an organizational culture that is quite innovative and entrepreneurial. I mean, you literally can go from like ideation to implementation relatively quickly. You can pitch new ideas. You can beta test things. You can pilot things. And if it doesn't work out, then you just don't do it again, right? And if it does, you certainly, you know, provide kind of evidence of impact and map it on to like the university strategic plan or something, right? And um, you can kind of, you know, make things happen here. And so I think those institutional characteristics, as well as, you know, the supportive leadership really are kind of the, the, the key ingredients that helped cultivate what we were able to do in a relatively short amount of time. Like I always have to stop myself and remind myself, like it's been four years since 2018. I kind of, you know, on some days I feel like it's been an eternity. And on some days, some days, you know, I feel like it was just yesterday that all of this happened. And so, you know, because of that, we've been able to build quite a bit of institutional capacity. You know, I always say that I am one of, of two individuals um, who serve at this level of leadership within their institution that has an explicit focus on HSI initiatives. And to be honest, I think when, when you have a position that allows for that level of focus and allows for that level of, of institutional leadership and influence and vision, um, I, I think that's when things can really um, speed up and expedite and scale and have impact. Um, because I think it can be a little bit more challenging if you're located, you know, kind of differently within the organization where you're maybe not at those tables, you know, you're not sitting on the president's senior leadership team, you know, it's, it's a little bit harder for you to navigate the institution and get that priority and that voice across. And so um, oftentimes when I'm talking with colleagues, you know, I think some of those challenges arise for them because um, organizationally where they're located or maybe they're um, a, a director of, of HSI um, efforts or initiatives, and it's often tied um, to a very specific grant. Oftentimes, you know, uh, a Title V U.S. Department of Education grant or a Title III, and, and those are wonderful, important, um, I think, contributions of, of serviness that are likely happening on their campus, but they're very anchored and tied to very specific objectives, um, key performance indicators, metrics, and outputs, right? And so I think that sometimes it makes it hard to be perhaps visionary and, and innovative around the work. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. It was actually going to be my next question mm -hmm. of like the importance of it being an assistant vice provost role. Like yeah. that's powerful, right? To say HSIs is at that level. 
Yeah, you know, it, it absolutely is. I mean, I think it does. It does something when you are at a table, you know, when you're talking to department heads, when you're talking to college deans, um, when you're talking to your foundation and development officers, right, when you're talking to your CFO about financial resources and what institutional commitment looks like, right, or when you're having conversations with your provost or when you're thinking about, you know, how do I have conversations with the Arizona Board of Regents about this? So, you know, it, it absolutely, it absolutely does. I think it, it makes a difference. For sure. And I hope fo- at campuses, folks that are listening, that are that are looking to, you know, aspiring to have uh, an HSI director that's higher, right, at, at the at the vice provost level, um, will we'll turn to y'all's model because you do absolutely have a, you know, a powerful model that's, that's helping to move the institution. Um, you've done, created many programs um, that we can't talk about all of them, right? Because you, you've created so many programs that we don't even have enough time. But one of them that I know is really successful successful and I think is, is great. And y'all are, are really pushing the institution in a lot of ways through this program is the HSI fellows program. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that program. Yeah. So the HSI fellows program, that's like my baby, you know, um, I, that, that program, um, also came about around the time of the designation shortly after the designation and kind of in between the time that I was appointed to this particular position. But, You know, one of the, I guess, impetus um, for developing the program, to be honest, um, comes out of my own experience as a professional here at the University of Arizona. Um, I had applied to um, this institution's kind of premier leadership development program, which is called the Academic Leadership Program. And, you know, it's it's a wonderful program. It's highly competitive to get into, you know, but it was something that I aspired for because I felt like I was just ready for the next step here at the University of Arizona. And so, you know, that that program was wonderful, but I felt like kind of towards at the, the end of it, I felt it was a little bit like a cliff dive, right? Like you led me through all of these kind of like um, amazing cohort-based um, leadership development experiences. But at the end, I just felt like, okay, I'm ready to do more, give more of myself, you know, how, where does this lead to, right? And so, you know, I felt kind of a little bit like stymied towards the end, right? I had more to give, you know, more to love, more passion, you know, to kind of present to the table. And, and also, so I took that experience and I also took the, the experience, to be honest, of, of moving here from Southern California to Tucson and working here at the University of Arizona. You know, it was a really big culture shift for me. Um, I think that oftentimes when we talk about like that um, first gen um, status, no one really talks about how that follows you into your professional career. Um, you know, as you know, I, I've been here now at the University of Arizona for nine years. And so, you know, nine and a half years ago, when I was contemplating the decision to even come here to the University of Arizona, I think as a Latina first generation, you know, uh, college student and uh, PhD grad and, you know, professional within this type of setting, I even still felt kind of those um cultural ties and expectations to even go and have conversations with my, my, um, with my parents and my grandmother about like, 
you know, I'm, uh, I'm possibly thinking about leaving the state. Right. And, and how do we, how do we collectively feel about that? Like, I felt like it wasn't just my decision, right. I felt like I was making a decision, not only, you know, for my immediate family, but also my extended family was going to have implications for everyone. Um, And so when I, when I made my way here to the University of Arizona, I was desperately, to be honest, like looking for my people, right? Where, where do I find a sense of community and a connection and sense of belonging? Like, where do I even find my favorite foods, right? Um, And, and so like, I just felt like that wasn't quite set up in a way that was, um, that was well-established, that was welcoming. It just kind of took me longer than I expected to kind of find a sense of home here. And so collectively, I took those experiences and I, you know, I always say, you know, we can either be bitter or we can be better, right? And I just didn't want others um, who, who are employed here at the University of Arizona to feel that experience themselves. Um, and so I definitely give um, a whole feel and flavor um, to, um, to the HSI Fellows Program, where I say it's the program where you enter as fellows and you leave as family. So what the HSI Fellows Program is, though, is it is a year-long cohort-based leadership development program that essentially cultivates and strengthens our leadership among faculty and staff to really be ambassadors, champions, and change agents centered on serviness as a Hispanic serving institution. I think one of the main objectives of this program is to create a sustainable model to this work. Even though my position is wonderful, right, and it's situated organizationally in a place where I'm able to contribute and influence, I'm just one person, right? And so at at no HSI should this rest on, you know, kind of the shoulders of just one person. And so how can we effectively and sustainably, right, build capacity among one of our greatest assets, which are our people, right? The people who, who, who give their hearts and souls um, to working in our respective institutions. And so um, we keep the cohorts relatively small. It's about you know eight to 10, um, a mix of faculty and staff. People have to apply um, to the HSI Fellows Program and we always uh, receive way more applications than we can accommodate, which is a great problem to have. Um, And we really kind of treat that cohort as just a real kind of intimate experience. Um, It starts off with a kickoff dinner. um, And I always say um, that that kickoff dinner, it starts in my home um, because there is no other way um, to convey a sense uh, where you communicate to another faculty or staff member on your campus you belong, you know, you matter, this, this experience is special, right, than to invite them into your own home. Um, And we, you know, kind of huddle around my large kitchen table, and we, you know, we eat, and we share, and we connect, and we confide um, in a way that really starts the experience off, um, and really sets the tone and tenor of how we expect this experience to feel. And we talk um, very candidly about what our experiences have been at the university, within the community, within higher education, um, and ways in which we want um, to do better um, and give more and to show up um, as a Hispanic serving institution. 
Um, so the, the program itself over the course of the year, in addition to that kickoff dinner, has about maybe eight sessions. And we bring various individuals in from across the nation, including you, Gina. You are always so gracious enough to zoom in and give some of your time. But we also, you know, bring in, for example, students, um, student advocates. Um, we have had um, a level of student advocacy, for example, for a couple of years now, where they have presented lists of demands. And I think that there's a lot to learn from student advocacy on our campus. Um, I mean, they've got some maneuvering and strategy skills like no other that we could probably learn from. Um, so I brought um, individuals like that in to talk. I've also, you know, utilized the program to challenge our own notions about who we deem as knowledge holders, right? They're not always, you know, kind of in, in, in the 2% of, of individuals like who are published in, in the most selective journals, right? They are community members, they are elders, they are leaders of local nonprofit organizations, they are, you know, community organizers, right? And so we bring those in as well, just to kind of honor and validate that that's, that's absolutely valid knowledge that absolutely should be informing how we're thinking about this work, how we're approaching this work. So, and then uh, one of the other components to the work that's really important is the project-based component piece, um, because it's, it's really important to ensure that we are developing the cohort every year um, to assume levels of, of leadership and, and advocacy uh, and to initiate change. Uh, within their local sphere or, you know, throughout the university. And so they work in small teams of about, you know, two, three, or four individuals, and they identify kind of a challenge gap or, or need around serviness. And then they work to actually create and often implement blueprints for institutional change. Um, and so through that collective experience, every single cohort, we are cultivating and grooming this strong stellar level of ambassadorship and change agents and so literally like the pond you just you're throwing a pebble in the pond and you're seeing that ripple effect and it's it's pretty amazing to see some of the things that um, HSI fellows have gone on to do and I always say you know once a fellow always a fellow so you know I just kind of identify them as like oh yeah you're cohort one you're cohort two and and it's exciting. We're um, onboarding cohort five will come to my house um, this September um, for their special launch dinner. So super excited. Wow, you just said a lot. And I've heard this story before, and I have never thought about it in this way. But as a researcher, I'm going to code this as servingness for faculty and staff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important because everything you said to me, we could have replaced that this program was for faculty and staff with students, yeah, right? Absolutely. And we generally focus on students. We want to create a sense of belonging for students. We want to create cohorts for students. We want to acknowledge students' cult community cultural well. We want them to feel like they belong. I mean, all of these things. And you said all of that, but it's for faculty and staff. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. that's powerful. Yeah. So I'm going to code it as serving us for, for faculty and staff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> because I mean, and the reality is if your faculty and your staff don't feel all those things, they're leaving. It's they're so when you're, true. They're when you're Latinx faculty and staff that you just hired, you know, you hired 20 and now 18 went out the back door and you're like, well, now you netted two. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and that's, I mean, some of the magic that happens as well, there's so much mentoring, there's peer to peer mentoring within the cohort, there's mentorship that I give others that I bring into the experience often will mentor them as well. I mean, these people, you know, end up, you know, taking on things that are unimaginable here at this institution, advancing their own efforts, bringing innovative ways to approach the work on their own, you know, and so I mean, it's, it's happening right before my eyes, like the payoff, the impact, the scale, but you know, you're right. Oftentimes, sometimes these fellows will tell me, you know, kind of later um, in the experience or a year later, two years later, you know, they'll say like, you know, if it wasn't for the fellows program, I don't know that I'd still be working here. Right. Or, you know, they found perhaps maybe some, you know, just like limitations within, you know, their, their own work environment. And maybe they went and, and moved on to a, a different department within the same institution and, and now are, you know, flying and, and really kind of implementing equity focused work. Um, so it's just been interesting to see the trajectory, like of each one of them. And to be honest, there's actually some who have left the university, but are tremendous change agents in the in the local community. Mm. And I still chalk that up to a, a major win because they're they're now like the CFO, for example, for you know Tucson Unified School District, or like they're doing community development work for you know Southern Arizona American Heart so- Association, right? And so think about kind of the disproportionate like health equity impacts to the community, you know, here um, in Southern Arizona. So they're advancing the work. Um, outside of the boundaries of, of our institution, which is pretty cool. And I, all, and I often feel like this is also kind of like an area where there's not a ton of higher education institutions. So I always feel like, you know, um, it's more like of a, of a swirl, right? Like you might work here and then you'll go work in the community. And then, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if those folks came back, you know, and worked in different capacities. So Absolutely. All right. So we're going to call it a retention mechanism, a servingness for faculty and staff, affinity group. I mean, so many things, right, that are that have come out of that program. So thank you for sharing, um, because it absolutely advances the capacity of the institution to do this work. Um, So let's talk a little bit about another initiative you've been a part of. that I wish all states would go ahead and, and, and do. So let's learn a little bit about what y'all have done in Arizona, which is uh, launch an HSI consortium. So tell us a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah, so that was kind of cool because that also has a link to the HSI Fellows Program. And I think it was in the second cohort. So uh, two cohort members took on um, kind of the charge that I gave them. I was like, i I've seen and I think that there are these regional and statewide consortiums elsewhere. You know, let's go research the heck out of them, like come to understand like their structure, their purpose, right? Are they um, fee-based? You know, what are their priorities and core sets of activities? How long have they been in existence? Um, You know, do people get voted in? How does it work essentially? So we came to examine four states. Um, some of them had regional models, some of them had statewide models. So we looked at Southern California's regional model. Um, Texas has a statewide, Nevada has a statewide, and then uh, Florida at the time kind of had a, a regional model. So we, we kind of, the two HSI fellows took a deep dive, um, you know, engaged with um, each of those um, consortium and, and really kind of 
came to under, understand what they were all about. And then we essentially used that to inform the launch of what's called the AZHSI Consortium, which serves as a statewide model, um, a community of practice um, to really help um, connect the dots and tie us together as a community of practice at, as HSIs. Um, here in Arizona, we have incrementally seen growth in the number of both um, HSIs and emerging HSIs. Um, and so, you know, noticing that there was this trend and, and certainly not wanting people to um, struggle and figuring this work out in isolation, right? Um, also seeing that there was opportunity in coming together to do this work. Um, so I serve as the founder to the AZHSI Consortium, and I was able to um, enlist um, the collaboration and support of a dear friend and colleague, Dr. Ray Rivera, who serves as the president of Australia Mountain Community College. I wanted to make sure that there was both representation from a four-year and a two-year HSI who were really part of the founding leadership um, for the consortium. You know, knowing that nationally 44% approximately of, of HSIs are community colleges. Um, and that trend is, you know, essentially mirrored um, in the state of Arizona. So I wanted to make sure that there was represent solid representation from two years and four years. And so we did a, a soft launch um, about uh, a year and a half or so ago towards the earlier part of the pandemic. Um, we convened uh, presidents and chancellors from uh, across um, the state of Arizona, HSIs pulled them together, you know, to kind of gauge their interests, you know, was it something that they wanted to proceed with? And we also, you know, quickly, um, I think, gleaned um, some of the the, the things that they wanted to see from the consortium, uh, ways in which they felt their institution could be supported by the development of consortium. Um, so we did a soft launch, and, and soon after that, we uh, launched uh, a website off of the AZ, uh, the University of Arizona's HSI uh, webpage. Um, we launched a listserv so that we could quickly enable um, exchange of information, best practices, ideas, um, advertisement and communication about events. Um, and that exchange could go in any, any direction. Anyone could share that information. Um, and then we also, um, Dr. Rivera and I um, established a steering committee. We wanted to make sure that we were enlarging, enlarging, right, um, and broadening um, the, the leadership um, who could really provide um, further direction to mobilize and, and move um, towards building a solid um, consortium. And so um, we have some amazing individuals from some of our community colleges that are HSI. So we have for example, the president of Arizona Western Community College, the provost of Pima Community College. Um, we also have um, certainly a, a few more uh, from uh, Cochise um, College, uh, dean of students out there. Um, and also, too, very strategically, there's um, uh, two individuals who are on the steering committee, one from Maricopa Community College at the district level, and then one who is a staff member at the Arizona Board of Regents, right? And so those help give us, you know, kind of district or system level ties, um, you know, which was, you know, by design, by strategy, right? Um, and then since then, um, I, interestingly, I was able to get a meeting with our foundation who helped facilitate um, a meeting with the Helios Education Foundation. And we were telling them about, you know, the AZHSI Consortium. It aligns exceptionally well with their mission 
which really is advancing um, educational success for Latino students within the states of Arizona and Florida specifically. Um, and they invited us to submit a proposal um, uh, several months ago. And as a result, um, awarded us uh, a $100,000 planning grant a one-year planning grant to really help shore up the foundation to this consortium. Um, and they're very much interested in continuing, you know, the partnership, you know, moving forward. We've also, you know, received support actually from the Community Foundation of Arizona as well. And so um, it's been great to find some uh, common alignment and mission, but I think it's been a really great opportunity for leaders um, across Arizona HSIs to really band together, exchange you know, best practices that work for us, um, HSIs in the state of Arizona, right? Um, I think oftentimes I, I tell people, you know, these kind of best practices or evidence-based practices, right? You know, you there's there's no shortage of, of higher educational literature on that. But, you know, all too often when you get to the end of the study, and it focuses on, you know, the limitations of the study, you know, oftentimes it will say, you know, yes, you know, um, this didn't prove to be effective for students of color, first-generation college students, or low-income Pell-eligible students, right? So essentially, those don't work for students at HSI then. So how do we develop, right, a, a process um, and start to really um, curate, like, our own practices that are demonstrating impact for our students at our HSIs in the state of Arizona. And that's some of the work that we're heavily steeped in. We're also going to be um, hosting our very first AZ HSI Consortium Summit um, in the fall that will convene um, HSIs and emerging HSIs, including students, faculty, um, staff, administrators, um, community leaders, and industry partners, um, you know, to really exchange best practices, um, engage in discussion, uh, and hopefully, you know, um, enable some, some new synergistic partnerships to develop. So super excited about that work. Um, this is really only the beginning. Wow, so powerful. I love that all the, the programs and, and initiatives you start, you, you start with research, right? You're like, the HSI fellows, they did their research, right? They right. dug in and who's doing these consortiums and what did they do and how mm -hmm. could it be different and how are we going to make it specific to Arizona? And now I know it's called AZ HSI Consortium. Okay, yeah. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll call it AZ. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was just short for Arizona. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So um, all of this, um, you know, you obviously have, 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 have had good successes. So for folks listening, they're, they're like, wow, we're just getting started in the serving S and, you know, Dr. Franco's over there just like crushing the game. What are some key elements to becoming a successful HSI? Yeah, you know, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I always love having conversations with colleagues, you know, across the nation about that. And I, I also just kind of like caution folks to um, just be, you know, I think one, be, be gracious with themselves. Like, I don't want them to feel like they're, you know, kind of behind the game necessarily. I think we all have a starting point in this work. You know, there were people that I reached out to, you know, back when I described my starting point, you know, in 2015, when I got that super informal inquiry to look into this from my senior VP, right? That's where I felt like I was, you know, starting behind the eight ball, right? And I was reaching out to colleagues, particularly those in California, 
um, you know, who had at least, you know, a couple of years, if not more, under their belt of, of experience. Um, so don't, you know, everyone has a starting point. Every institution has a starting point. You know, every colleague has a starting point in this work. So I think we all just kind of, one, need to be, you know, gracious with ourselves about that. But I think the second thing that I would also, you know, communicate and echo is, is, you know, just to be super cautious about, you know, not, um, there's like, no need to kind of carbon copy things, right? I mean, I think we can, you know, certainly learn from some of the practices that are sprinkled across all of our institutions. But I also think, you know, one of the super things, one of the things that's really important, though, is to kind of take stock and come to understand intrinsically, like your own institution, right? Um, because I'm designing things that are responsive to the University of Arizona's needs, right? So, you know, you know, you and another institution need to come to understand what your institution's needs are, right? And how do you do that, right? How do you, how do you engage, you know, students, staff? faculty, alumni, community members, you know, legislators, whatever those key stakeholder groups might be, right? How do you, how do you come to understand what those needs are? You know, take stock of existing assets. You're probably not starting from square run one on this, right? Um, and through that process, sometimes it's quite illuminating through the data, through taking stock of assets, right? That you come to determine like, oh, wow, there are some gaps and challenges and needs in these other areas. And that's where you put your energy and resources, right, to kind of making a difference. And when you find that there are assets that are moving the needle in, in directions that are meaningful and important to the institution, then how do you make sure that perhaps maybe those are scaled? How do you double down on the things that are working, right? And so sometimes I caution people, like, don't go chasing the, the shiny, pretty things, right? It, like, sometimes, like, take stock of what you have that's working and double down on that, because sometimes those areas might even oftentimes are struggling for resources, and they could be doing so much more and having an exponential um, impact on, you know, Latinx student success if they were only supported more. Absolutely. So what I hear you saying in all of this is uh, this work is institution specific, it's regional specific, it's state specific. HSI can't just be a one size fits all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that there's lots for us to learn and contribute to as we share and exchange um, some of the work that's happening across our institutions. But I think also making sure that you're really coming to a good, well-informed understanding of what you think your institution needs and, and how do you know that? Right. Absolutely. And you're right. Like a lot of institutions are doing things that could be classified as serving this and serving students. And historically, you know, I think about EOPs and TRIO yeah, programs and absolutely. outreach programs that have been going on since mm -hmm. well before either of us were doing any of this work. Yeah. Um, those, those, those fall under, right. I'm talking about coding. Those are coded as, as, as practices, structures for serving uh, Latinx students, black students, low income students, first gen students, historically. Um, so yeah, so definitely, I, I you know, I agree. That's such an important part. Is just sort of what are we already doing, and then how do we advance, right, within mm -hmm. our own context. Mm -hmm. So the flip side is the challenges. This can't be. You make it look easy. You make this look like you know, no. any, everybody could do this. What are the challenges to some of this work? Yeah, well, Gina knows that that it's not always so easy for me. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's not easy. Um, and and one of the things that I often share is that you know, I mean, 
I, I feel like oftentimes in my prior positions uh, working at higher education institutions, like the nature of the work that I did, you know, always kind of allowed for um, a certain amount of degrees of separation between like what I did and who I was a, as a person, right? In this role, there's like no degrees of separation. Like, you know, I am this work and this work is me, you know, and I, and I say that like with just like the fullest heart and the fullest mind. And, and, and certainly, you know, I, I, because I was able to kind of design things, I, I suppose I, I designed it that way in, in many regards. Right. And so I often say, you know, you'll probably, you know, not find a whole lot of, you know, other people who are this, you know, kind of passionate and overzealous about the work, but but it makes the wins, um, you know, that much stronger and it makes kind of the losses or the challenges that much stronger. Right. So there's a lot of there's a lot of it can be a lot of heart heartache and frustration. Right. Um, around, you know, not seeing something happen or getting a no uh, when you really want to hear yes or a not now or things, frankly, sometimes maybe if they're not moving fast enough. Right. Um, so, you know, the, the wins, um, uh, are extreme, feel extreme and, and so do the losses and, and the heartaches feel extreme. So it's, it's not, um, it, this work is not for the faint of heart, uh, most definitely. Um, I think you really have to just love, um, what you do. You have to be all in all the time. Um, and, and, you know, so it's, it's not easy. Um, you know, there's a lot of spaces, you know, I'm, um, you know, a small, you know, but mighty, you know, woman of color and uh, showing up to these tables um, are not easy. Um, but I think that really focusing on meeting people where they're at um, and engaging them in, in conversation, showing them the potential, showing them the, the impact, um, the vision for this work, um, identifying, you know, common areas of, of, of interest and need. And then showing them that there's a path forward um, in building, you know, partnerships of collaboration towards collectively approaching this work. Um, and so, you know, it just kind of takes a lot of, you know, resilience and, um, you know, kind of staying in the game. So. Wow. When you said this work is me and I am this work, like I felt that I was like, wow, that I, I feel like that too. Right. I do this work and you know, my serving is journey too. It is me. Right. I do this yeah. work. It, it's 100% me. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, that that's powerful to think that like, you know, uh, we don't show up to do this HSI work because it's easy or because we're getting paid, uh, you know, this yeah. pushy salary to do it. No, like we actually do this work because this is what we care about and are passionate about. Yeah. So. I mean, oftentimes, like I would describe it, like it's, it's not like, it's not a position. It's like a calling. Like mm. there's, I mean, it's, it's something that's far greater than, um, than a position at a higher education institution, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think the other thing that makes me like, you know, still like just so grounded in, in, in being connected to this work, right, is like I have, um, you know, two, two kids myself, two teenagers, they're 16 and 13. And I can't help, you know, I, I can't help but think about them, like they're going to be, you know, at some point in time, hi entering higher education institutions, 
what environments do I want them to step into, right? What, what experiences do I want them to have? I want them to step foot on campuses where they see faculty and staff, you know, who look like them, who share aspects of their, um, their identity and their, their background and their experiences, right? I want them to feel affirmed and validated. And uh, I want them to experience a sense of, of belonging and be prepared for, you know, um, to be, you know, community ready, to be workforce ready, to be grad school ready, and, and to lead thriving lives. And so I can't help but think about them and, and what I want for them and what I want for all students that come through this university and every other HSI. I also can't help but think about the younger version of myself, um, who was first generation Latina college student, like who didn't even know how to read a course catalog. And so, yes, I know I'm dating myself, but back in the day, they used to, <laughs> they used to print those out like like a phone Ooh, book and, and yeah. to flip through them. Right. Like I didn't know. I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know what I was supposed to do with that. And it was like, you want me to find a class? How do you like based off of what do you select? You know, and so. I mean, I just can't help but think about myself and how I was yearning to find a sense of connection, a sense of community, to find, you know, students who look like me, faculty who look like me. Um, so I think about a lot of that. And, and I also can't help. I know that there are, you know, elders um, and, and, and senior scholars um, who, you know, and, and parents and, and families um, who have championed and advocated for this work, even particularly at this institution, like long before I ever arrived, right? And so I always feel like, you know, you know, I'm showing up at this point in time and this point of history for this work at this institution, but by no means am I, you know, the first person to, to really advocate for, you know, parity and equity and a sense of inclusion and uh, uh, um, uh, a, a real kind of advocacy to be centering, you know, serving this in all facets of what we do. And so, um, and I always, always feel too that, you know, this community, I think, uh, rolls large and it rolls deep. And so I always feel too that I have like a thousand people, like a thousand ancestors behind me, right? Like, uh, rolling deep in this work with me. So um, that, you know, you, you feel a sense of obligation and a responsibility and a calling um, to just keep moving forward. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So I wanted to um, talk a little bit about grants, which you talked about with the um, AZHSI consortium a little bit. One, part of the servingness model, as you know, we talk about um, one, one structure of many structures is the grants, right? That grant yeah. getting is an important part of servingness, but you're, you know, everything you're talking about is also a model of how it's not just about the grants. That HSIs cannot be um, reduced to specifically the federal grants, right? So talk yeah. a little bit about that, um, about how you've used grants, both federal grants and local and other, uh, you know, foundation grants to enact serviness. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll definitely, you know, I'll share one specific example and it's, it's one um, connected to um, our first title grant, the uh, title five grant that we received. Um, and that occurred in 2020. So we are officially in year two of that. Um, and one of the things that, that we did is early on in the work uh, of becoming an HSI, we spent a lot of time intentionally listening listening to our campus community, listening to our local and regional community. We, we actually kind of did a listening tour. We, we, ran, we went around to whoever would have us, essentially, right? 
Um, so we met with like superintendents and principals and K through 12 educators and parents and families, um, local elected officials. We met with academic advisors and faculty and students. Um, we met with whomever would listen to us. And um, and we sat there and, and we, you know, certainly engaged in a facilitated conversation and talked to them a little bit about the designation and the University of Arizona, but we took a lot of notes and we, we were there primarily um, to be listeners. And I think that we engaged in a number of those types of activities for probably roughly about a year and a half, two years. And that is actually what ended up uh, leading to informing our strategy for approaching the first Title V grant that we had. So one of the um, one of the students at the time, she was a doctoral student in our Mexican American Studies program. She has now since graduated and is doing some amazing work. And um, she actually was an instructor at the local community college, which is Pima Community College, which is also an HSI. And she was an instructor who was employed by them and was teaching a dual enrollment course. And I am an administrator that likes to learn through experience. Um, so I had had a conversation with her about her teaching, and she ended up inviting me um, to attend the last class session of the dual enrollment course that she was teaching. And I said, absolutely, I would love to go with you. And she was actually teaching a dual enrollment course um, for um, a community called Ajo, which is in um, Ajo, Arizona. And it is a very um, tiny rural uh, part of, of Arizona. And without dual enrollment courses, I mean, th this, this high school couldn't even offer, um, you know, the types of courses that you would even need to be eligible to apply. Uh, to a higher education institution like the University of Arizona or elsewhere. And, and so I journeyed with her, you know, to this very rural, remote part of Arizona. And literally, you know, the, the K through eight school is one building. And then literally right next door, the next small building is the high school. That's how small we're talking about. Me coming from Southern California, like I had never, I mean, that that's really small. Ajo is really small. But I got to see, so she was actually teaching an ethnic studies course that students were able to get dual enrollment course credit from a Pima Community College. Um, and I just saw like the profound, I witnessed for myself, the profound impact that it had on students, the level of uh, curricular offerings that it allowed for that really small high school to, to offer its students. Um, and I got to kind of better understand what some of the, the, needs, um, the needs were and what some of the aspirations were of students from that community. And I was also able to observe our, who at the time was a doctoral student, I was able to kind of observe how she engaged with the students, um, her teaching methods, her, you know, pedagogical approach, and it was pretty amazing to witness that. Um, so I, I took aspects of that experience and so many other conversations that we had had that we had listened to over the course of a, a year and a half listening tour, and we used that to inform our approach to the awarded Title V grant, which is called Project Outreach Familia. And what it does is it prioritizes a few things. It prioritizes parent and family engagement um, among local high Hispanic enrolling high schools. 
Um, it offers a pre-calculus dual enrollment course that is currently being designed um, from an asset-based and place-based approach. Um, and it's also awarding local high Hispanic enrolling high schools um, mini grants so that they can identify and build out greater capacity locally for their college going efforts. And that's all informed by what they communicated to us as needs and priorities um, for their own communities. And so I think that even the approach of grant development work can be done in a way that centers serviness. And that's just kind of one example of one way that we've done it. Um, and we actually have launched um, uh, what's called an HSI Grants Development Institute. We beta tested that last summer and we're gonna offer it again this fall, but it really kind of is a one day experience that um, uh, really trains and supports faculty and staff who have interests in pursuing HSI related grants. It really kind of teaches and supports them in approaching that, that type of work in that manner. Because, you know, I want to make sure that the ways in which our, our own faculty and staff are approaching the work um, are synonymous with what I just described. Okay, so speaking of, you know, community engagement, you just talked about, um, uh, you know, really understanding the, the, the local community needs. Um, talk about that as a part of servingness, because we do talk about that in the servingness framework, as well as as far as like HSIs becoming community partners and really working with their local communities. And you, you know, definitely done some work in that area. So talk to us about um, the role of community engagement and servingness. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, myself and two other colleagues, you know, took a, a deep dive into some of that work. So my colleague uh, Guadalupe Lozano and Vignesh Subian were uh, fortunate enough to, um, you know, uh, co-author a, a chapter, you know, that's actually in one of your books. And, and we developed and proposed, you know, a framework for HSIs um, to think about, you know, kind of the lenses and, and the values and the approaches um, that HSIs, you know, likely should uh, be cognizant of and, and take on um, in their relationship building um, and in, in their collaboration with community partners. So definitely would encourage folks to, to check that out. But, you know, community engagement, I mean, that's one of the parts of my, my job that I really love. I, I do that, you know, oftentimes I'll, I'll tease people, they ask, um, like, about my social life. Um, and essentially, my social life oftentimes is my, my community engagement work, um, and it's both fun, and I also say that it's soul nourishing, which it absolutely is. It, it replenishes me. It keeps me full, um, and I think it, it, it provides that continuity uh, between uh, community-based priorities, um, needs, um, and then what, how we're committing to the work here at the University of Arizona. So I need them to keep guiding me and being my, my North Star to this work. But there's a couple of ways um, that, that, uh, that that approach kind of shows up in a very practical sense. I mean, one, I, I think this is like low lift. Um, and I think it's relatively easy, but I think it requires great intentionality. So like, for example, um, supporting local uh, business owners of color, that is like one way where we do some of our community engagement work. Um, so like, for example, the last session of the HSI fellows um, this past spring, you know, I held it, you know, at a location 
where it's owned by, you know, these two men of color um, who I engage, you know, with quite frequently um, around some community-based work. And, you know, we held um, our last session there. It's like, okay, if you're going to give your, your money, you know, you know, you, you could divert, you know, kind of maybe expensive catering on your own campus and pour that in, you know, to your local community and support some local business owners, particularly, um, you know, local business owners who are um, owners of color. So that's kind of an easy lift. Um, I think, you know, another way is um, we actually on our advisory board. So we have an advisory board for our um, Title V project, Project Outreach Familia. And one one of our advisory board members, Adalita Grijalva, she's actually a supervisor of the Pima Community District Five um, office, for example. And so that's like, you know, an elected uh, official who's like a native Tucsonan, um, heavily invested in the community, has sat on you know, um, school boards, you know, and have, has been very engaged um, in, in the community. It's like, let's, let's leverage that expertise within the community and have them serve on an advisory board so that they continue guiding and kind of influencing um, the direction of our Title V project, for example. You know, one of the, the other ways in which that has happened is, so myself and my my dear colleague and friend, Dr. Judy Marquez-Guillama, who is with us, she um, serves as the Associate Vice Provost for Faculty Development. Um, and she and I are often, you know, co-conspirators and, and colleagues in many endeavors. Um, she and I both have uh, faculty uh, appointments within the Center for the Study of Higher Education here at the University of Arizona. And this past year, we launched a new um, graduate level course um, focused on funds of knowledge and HSIs. And we specifically designed it to be a year long course because there was gonna be a community uh, based uh, partnership that we were gonna have the students cultivate, nurture, and execute on by the end of the class. Um, And we wanted to make sure it's like, you know, you can't fit that type of relationship building into a semester, right? It's not like, okay, start, let's ramp it up, and then we're done. Um, But it's like, no, we're going to model for these students what cultivating and centering servingness looks like relative to community partnerships, right? And we're gonna model that work for them and we're actually gonna bring them along in the process. And so we ended up partnering with um, a couple of local um, uh, for-profit local uh, businesses that are um, owned by uh, individuals of color in this community, um, as well as nonprofit organizations. And, um, you know, that's kind of another way is if, if you have the opportunity where you are teaching students, how do you think about some of that authentic uh, collaboration with the community um, and, and making those connections with the courses that you teach? How are you modeling for the students what it means um, to show up and really cultivate authentic, genuine partnerships where it's grounded in things like mutual benefit and reciprocity, which is something that we talk about in, in the framework relative to community partnerships. So, you know, I think that those are some just some quick examples of how that has showed up for us. But you know, one of the interesting experiences that I also got to have this past spring is uh, my community knows, like, I I rarely, if ever, will say no to them. I, I always say when the community calls, I always say, you know, what do you need me to do? Where do you need me? And when do you need me to show up? I'll be there. 
And so one of my dear colleagues and friends, Selena Barajas, she's um, owner of uh, Mirena Mobile Boutiques. Um, she had this um, grand idea to um, actually launch an inaugural uh, Reina prom giveaway competition. And so while like a prom giveaway competition is likely something that you would never think about within the scope of, of, of work or purview of, of an assistant vice provost for HSI initiatives, like I said, when the community calls, I say, where do you need me and what do you need me to do? Um, and that's, she asked me to be a, a judge in, in that competition that she held. And it was so phenomenal because I would have to say it was the most profound outreach event that actually wasn't an outreach event. And I, and what it did for me is, is like, it took a community member to model for me what was possible, because I think we are often so ingrained um, as longtime educators in thinking about what things are supposed to look like. Um, and we, we need to have experiences that allow us to, um, to kind of free our minds and free our hearts um, to think differently about how experiences can be constructed that potentially are just so much more authentic um, and validating and actually cultivate better college going pathways than how we originally think about designing them. So it's pretty profound. I, I take my community partnership work pretty seriously. Absolutely. And I've, I've witnessed that. That's why I wanted you to talk about that. I feel like I'm doing, um, I'm doing data analysis right now. Everything you talk about, I'm like mapping on to like the surveyness framework. I'm like, that's surveyness. That, that's this part. Um, now the part I want you to talk about um, as a final element that I know also um, is important is the external influences part. That's also in the surveyness framework um, and how like state and local policies affect surveyness, either they can help or hinder. So, so what are your thoughts on how you've uh, navigated those external, you know, like policy forces? Yeah, so that is definitely been a big, uh, that was a big aspect of transition for me, I think, in coming from Southern California to the state of Arizona. Um, definitely um, a, a different political climate, um, even within the higher education realm, you know. So I think a couple of things that have really um, you know, impacted um, and, and posed some um, challenges and, and really have had to kind of force us to get quite creative in, in some of our endeavors, right? So, you know, I think one is, you know, there's been um, certainly some longstanding historical, you know, pushback against ethnic studies in the state of Arizona. Um, Tucson Unified School District, um, which is, you know, the local um, school district, you know, is quite historical in that in that endeavor. And there's been many um, faculty and community members that have um, been longstanding advocates, you know, scholars, you know, um, and families um, who have been pushing for that. But um, that that steeped and rich, deep, complicated history is definitely one um, uh, in the state of Arizona around ethnic studies. Um, you know, to, to, uh, Tucson Unified School District actually, you know, has a desegregation order. And so that's the extent that it got um, here in the state of Arizona. Um, and so, you know, thankfully, you know, with the advocacy of many, you know, there's a, an amazing, vibrant 
uh, and highly engaged uh, Mexican-American studies program in Tucson Unified School District, um, thanks to that level of advocacy. So we have, you know, things like that that are riddled throughout the history of, of the state of Arizona. Um, currently, um, I'm actually, tomorrow night, I'm going to be going um, uh, to a fundraising event where I'm very proud to say, you know, my president of the University of Arizona is going to be speaking at, and that is um, it, it connected to Proposition 308, which is advocating for in-state tuition for DACA students, which we currently do not have. Um, currently, uh, DACA students pay tuition here at the University of Arizona um, at a rate of 150%. Um, so we have Prop 308, which is on the docket currently. Um, we also have a, a governor who recently just signed the most expansive school choice uh, legislation um, nearly in the state's history. Um, and that only serves to continue to um, disenfranchise and further um, create uh, inequitable disparities um, within our K through 12 education systems, um, you know, which only further get exacerbated and pose challenges at the idea of a college going you know, culture and population within the state of Arizona. So there's, um, you know, quite um, some contextual pieces which make things a bit complex um, to navigate and make it a little bit harder to do some of this work. Absolutely. That's exactly the things I think about when I think about those external influences in Arizona. I mean, y'all, it's political, there's politics, there's, there's the US-Mexico border, there's a large um, Native American population, yeah, right? Absolutely. There's so many layers to Arizona that we might need a whole nother episode just to talk about the external yeah. influences on servingness. Yeah, and we actually just either last week or two weeks ago, um, just announced that um, uh, starting in the fall of 2022, um, we will be um, uh, essentially covering uh, tuition and fees for Native American students. And so, you know, we reside within a state that has 22 federally recognized tribes, and we have senior level leadership um, at this university um, that have an explicit focus on Native American initiatives and uh, uh, tribal leadership, right? And so what does sovereignty mean within the context of a land-grant institution, um, a four-year public institution, an HSI within, within Southern Arizona, right? And so, um, you know, certainly I think that that announcement was um, key and a long time coming, right? And I think the continued conversations and, and commitments about what does that continue to look like beyond that, right? We want to make sure that while access is important, right, how do we ensure that the that the educational environment in which those um, students step into, right, is one that validates who they are, right, meets them where they're at in the process, um, sees them as assets, right? Um, are they going to come here and see, you know, Native faculty and staff? Are they going to see, you know, their culture and their history represented um, in a way that's authentic and genuine to their lived experiences? Absolutely. And also a great example of how HSI and serviness isn't exclusive to the H, the Hispanic, right? That's Absolutely. servingness. It addresses long-term inequities and long-term disparities, right? And you just gave a great example of what that looks like with Native American population, which has long historical 
the inequities that we need to address and NHSI should be addressing. So absolutely. Awesome. So final question, it's, it's, you know, off the top, people show up to, you know, they want to know what's happening with the HSI. So how do you respond to that? And the brief uh, response, get BASA HSIs. All I have to say is that it is exciting times for, for HSIs. You know, I, I recall, you know, when, when I first started out in this work in 2015, and there wasn't a whole lot of conversation even back then about HSIs. Um, so I guess, you know, I'm excited to see where all of this work is going. I mean, major kudos to you. I'm super excited about the work that you're, um, you know, helping to launch, um, you know, helping to kind of put it in the hands of, of all different types of stakeholders across the nation. So I'm just excited to be doing this work. I'm certainly excited to always um, have you um, an email way, a, a text away, you know? And so uh, I'm just excited to be doing this work um, in community with the community. Absolutely. Thank you so much, mi hermana, for being here with me um, today and for sharing all your wonderful knowledge. Yes, absolutely. So happy to be here. Excited for what's ahead.